We just thank you for this opportunity to come together. We ask you to guide us as we look at your word and thank you for each person that's here. If anybody is on their way, we ask you to bring them in quickly and let your Holy Spirit lead in all that we look at in your son's precious name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, or till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to look at this and, and uh, examine it. It says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus said that, basically said that he was there to fulfill all the law and the prophets, and he did. Okay? He lived the perfect life, the life that none of us can live. He paid a debt he didn't know because we couldn't pay it. And he fulfilled every one of the laws. And we've talked about this according to the Jews, and I've never counted them out, so, but I will believe the Jews because they studied this very carefully, that there are 613 laws in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, I've never really sat down to count them, but I know that there are several hundred that I know of, so I'm sure that they are probably <laughs> right. Especially it seems how they have whole books on, on how to keep, keep the laws. So Jesus kept every single one of the 613 laws in the Old Testament. And he kept them perfectly. He didn't, he didn't just barely keep them. He kept them to the highest possible standard that God set for them. Now, he did not keep the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, there's lots of things that they did as tradition. And he did not follow all the traditions of men. And we see that when he healed on the Sabbath day, and they, and they got all up, upset about that. And he goes, well, I'm just doing what my father does. <laughs> okay? And he did things that upset them because he didn't keep their extra rules. And we've talked about how the Jews, especially of that day, and even today, they, they do what they call putting a fence around the law, which means they've made it bigger than what the law says, so that if you violate their extra rules, you don't violate the law. And it's kind of a strange thing, but that's what they do. They make things so strict so that if you, that you can't accidentally violate the law. And they freely admit that that's what they've done with their traditions. They, they build a fence around it. And this is kind of what Adam did when, in the beginning when Eve said, we can't even touch the fruit. I do not believe that she came up that, with that on her own. I think Adam told her because he was the one that was told, don't eat that fruit lest or we're going to die. I believe he told her because he didn't, you can't eat the fruit if you didn't touch it. So I think Adam is the one that added to, the, to it and told Eve, you know, oh, we're not to eat that fruit. And by the way, don't, we're not even to touch it. So he, this logic of building fences around the law has gone back all the way to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Now, that does not mean it's right. It just is 
something that happens. Nowadays, we say, don't even look at that fruit. Yeah, we would say, don't even look at it, which if they hadn't looked at it, they would have been better off in the first place. Yeah, if they weren't hanging around looking at the fruit, wishing, wishing to, to desire to eat it, they wouldn't have had the problems that they ended up having. So, But these laws, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill all the law. And in verse 18, he says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And a jot and a tittle are the smallest marks in the... Hebrew language that they put little dots over their letters and little little dashes at certain places and they and they're the vowels and the and the breath marks and all that other stuff that you have in in their language but he says even the smallest increment is not going to be forgotten in English we would say you've dotted your i you know dotted all your i's and crossed all your t's the little the little extras in our language that make the letters what they really are. I mean, without, without a dotted I, you'd still know that, you know that it's an I or a dotted J, you'd know it's a J. If you didn't cross the T, you may or may not know what it, T, what it is without, without looking at it, the rest of the letters. But he's saying the smallest marks in the language are important and they won't pass away till all be fulfilled. Now the question comes on to this is, what does it mean till all be fulfilled? Does he mean that all the law was fulfilled? In which case, it was done at the cross. When he died on the cross, he fulfilled all the law. Okay? That doesn't mean the law got rid of, but that brings us into the period of grace where grace reigns and the law is what is used to express in our works. Or does he mean till literally the end of the world... <laughs> And that doesn't fit the context necessarily. He says not that nothing would be ended until he, until the law, until all the law was fulfilled, and the law will not be fulfilled at the end of the days because that it has been fulfilled upon the cross. And this is where I believe it is. It's not to say that the law is worthless, and we we cover that a lot. God's law is very valuable. It has great blessing in keeping His laws. There's, there's great blessing in them. Paul, all through Romans, goes through this whole case. You know, the law does not save you. The law has been fulfilled. But the law is not totally worthless. And we, because people will go, well, the law is fulfilled and then I can do whatever I want. Well, in technicality, we are free to do what we want. But if we truly love God and we're filled by him, we're going to follow his law and he's going to change us. And we've talked about this. When he comes in and fills us up, he changes who we are because he crucifies the flesh and he lives out of us so that we become more like him, not because I'm striving and working and trying to be more like him, but because he is inside literally changing who I am. And we've talked about this when we're when we, when we think about the word baptism, it means to submerge into, and we are, we are submerged into the Holy Spirit in, a, in, in our baptism. And the Holy Spirit changes us to be like him over time, just as, and we've used this example before, just as a vegetable thrown into vinegar becomes a pickle. 
All right. Over time, it becomes a pickle. The whole flavor of it changes. The texture, if, if you give it long enough, the texture itself will, 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 will change. And you end up with a pickle. And you put your garlic, you put your, your cucumber in the, in the vinegar, and it's got that hard exterior, you know, hard skin. And over time, it, it so, you, know, you heat up that vinegar, and the, the skin softens. And it doesn't taste like anything like a cucumber anymore because it has been, become a pickle. This is what happens to us when we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. We are changed into being more like God slowly, but it happens. And this is why we talk about this over and over. When we just walk with God, we, we are focused on him. We start thinking more like him. The Holy Spirit will change us. And we become more like him. And the other day we were talking about how, how do we know we're saved? We become more like him because he's changing who we are. And the ultimate change will be when we die and we are glorified and we become what God says we are. Perfect. And he takes away our sin nature, gives us our new, new body, new, new spiritual body, and he changes us into a perf perfect being that he says we are now. And so this is a kind of an interesting place. Is, has the law been fulfilled? Yes, at the cross, Jesus fulfilled the law. Does that mean the law is worthless in our day and age? No. It's still important that we tell the truth. God still has consequences for violating his laws, and Jesus is going to go through all those different consequences in the rest of this chapter. There's consequences for violating the law. If we tell lies... There's our consequences. There's consequences for being dishonest. There's consequences for our reputation. Now, if you, we all know probably somebody who tends to lie in our lifetime. And you look at them and you get to the place where you wonder, can I believe this person? Because their reputation is that they either outright lie or they stretch the truth. And it's, you know, the, and we hear those jokes all the time. How do you know a, li a, a lawyer's lying? His lips are moving, you know. And, and how do you know a politician's lying? Because their lips are moving, you know. We, we, we have those jokes, but it's not funny in one sense. If somebody gets that reputation, it's a terrible thing to have because you, you're looking at that person and going, I can't trust this person because I know that they lie at every opportunity or stretch the truth or whatever definition you want to use or exaggerate. I know known many people who exaggerate. They don't maybe quite break the break the truth, but they bend it into a pretzel so that you don't know what how much of what they're saying is true and how much of it has been exaggerated. So there's great value in keeping the rules that God provides, but He fulfilled them. He did what we can't do, and it's important for us to understand that. And but it is also He says that the whosoever shall break one of these least commandments and teach men to do so shall be called the least in the kingdom. And this is why it's important. We keep God's laws. Not because we're trying to be perfect, not because we're trying to, to, to uh, get a greater love out of him, but just because he desires us to. And as he changes us, we become more like him. And we've talked about this. Every single law of God is based in who he is. 
all right? Uh, in the Truth Project, it was a good, good lesson that Dale Tackett taught. God wasn't up in heaven, start, you know, flipping a coin. Is lying good or bad and flipping a coin to decide whether lying was good or bad? You know, can people murder or not flipping a coin? All, that is not how he did. He didn't choose the laws arbitrarily. He said, I am truth, therefore a lie is sin. It's against God. Now, and everything about him is based on him and his character. All the rules, all the laws are based in him. And so as we become more like him, we are going to obey the law because we are becoming more like him. We're going to be truthful. We're going to be people of integrity. And this is important. Uh, today, when I went to payroll and reported that my paycheck was over, overpaid, they looked at me like I was crazy. Why, why are you telling us this? You know, and it's, you know, and I had to go, you know, well, I, I hold integrity as a very high, high, high matter. So, you know, but how many times do people look at you? How many times have you maybe taken change back to a cashier because they've over, overgiven you your change or you, or you hand it back to them right then and go, you gave me too much. And they, you, know, you look at the people's faces and they're just, they can't believe that somebody will do that because God says to be people of in, integrity and we become that. And people look at you like you're absolutely nut. You're actually, you're actually paying, you know, giving it back. Well, that cashier has to, pay, you know, is going to be in trouble if they're short. You know, I want them to, to be taken care of. I, if I end up with an item that I didn't pay for, I'll actually go back to the place and pay for the item that they didn't ring up, at in the process because I want to be honest in all of my dealings. But so we want the we as we become more like God, we will do the right thing just because we are becoming like Him. Will we ever become totally like him? Not in this lifetime, but when we die, he will make us perfect. And then we'll walk with him in perfection in that relationship. And, but we're also to be very careful. We're to teach others that it is important to keep God's rules. Again, not because I'm looking to get anything, not because I'm trying to get more, get him to like me more. And that's what a lot of people think when, they, when they're trying to follow rules. If I follow enough of God's rules, he'll like me. He'll like me more. I'll, learn, I'll earn heaven. And that's not why we follow his rules. That's not why we get into them. We, we obey them because it's who he is. And, uh, be honest by example. Honest by example. Honest, you know, really, everything comes down to people are looking at what we do more than what we say. And it is true that our, that our actions speak louder than words, and we know that as a fact. And this is why I really emphasize people are watching us. When we say we're a Christian, they're looking at us. Are, are you more honest than most people? Do you, can I trust what you say? Are you a person of integrity? Are, are you going to love people even because that's what you say you're going to do, even when, when they're mean and nasty and unkind to you? They're looking at us to say, are you who you should be as a Christian. And this is important for us to be able to have that integrity of our walk, that we do what we say. We do what God says. Is that an easy thing to do? Absolutely not. Does it get easier the more you walk in it? Absolutely. We've, I've talked about this many times. The more we grow in Christ in our spiritual walk, the easier the walk becomes. And that's only because we practiced it. Just like if you're trying to learn to 
play a guitar or a piano. You know, I can make the notes on a piano, pick out the notes on a piano and play the chords on a guitar. They don't sound like music. Why? Because I don't practice. <laughs> I don't do it often enough to make it work. And if, if we can think back, when you first started playing sports, for especially since so we have guys here, you know, you didn't go out on the field the very first time that you tried to play the game and do everything right. And this is why teams, even at the professional level, practice every day because they need each activity to the point where it becomes just second nature. And the more we obey God, the more we walk with him, the more it becomes second nature. I obey just because I'm becoming that that person, not because I'm striving, not because I'm working, but because I am becoming like God in that area. This is where we're looking at. He wants us to be following him. And then he says something that would shock the people listening to him. It doesn't shock us as much, but he says in verse 20, for I say unto you that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to us, that doesn't seem quite as shocking, but you got to think about this. The scribes and the Pharisees in their day were considered the perfect people. All right? the, the Pharisees walked around at least telling everybody they, they obeyed God's rules. And there was a rich young man that came to Jesus who said, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus told him, well, you've got to keep the commandments. And he enlisted a couple, you know, honor your father and mother and, you know, uh, honor the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. And what was the man's response back? These I have done since my youth. His answer was, I've kept all those rules. You know, so, so I'm going to heaven, right, is basically what he was saying. And then Jesus said, Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And his, and his result was that he went away sad because he had great wealth is what it says. Now, was Jesus telling him he had to go sell all of his, all of his stuff? In his case, probably. But what was he really saying because the man went away sad? You have another God before God. You, know, you have a God before God. His money was his God. And he was basically saying, see, you have violated one of the, the commandments and you don't even know it because he went away sad. He violated, you shall have no other gods before me. But see, the scribes and Pharisees did not teach people to break the law. Matter of fact, they added to the laws to make it more difficult to obey like the laws. Yeah, well, basically, yeah. They, in many cases, it was like lawyers. They keep adding clauses to it and trying to make it bigger and bigger. But their goal was so much, wasn't so much that you was just to keep you from breaking the law. But then again, they also made all kinds of rules to break the laws to their own, to their own, uh, to their own good. By their law, you couldn't walk more than like two miles, I think it was, from your home on the Sabbath. So what they would do is every two miles, they'd put stuff that belongs in their house and call that part of their house. So they'd walk that, that two miles and they'd go, well, here's my stuff, I'm in my house. And they'd walk another two miles and they'd have something there that was of something of theirs in a little ta little box and they would call that their house. So they, they didn't really follow God's rules. They put all kinds of loopholes into it so that they could break the rules. And that's kind of what Jesus was leaning to. Things, in another case, Jesus said, you don't honor your parents and your, your father and mother because you have declared everything as Corbin. 
And what Corbin meant is that it was dedicated to the Lord, and when you died, it was supposed to go to the temple. You decided that everything was Corbin, so you didn't have to help your parents or your brothers or sisters because everything was dedicated to God and was going to go to God on your death. Jesus is the only decision for heaven and hell. What have you done with him if you accepted his sacrifice in your place? Now, having accepted him, is this where we go? Having accepted him, he fills us and he changes us. So if you're living a life where you're not being changed, then you have to figure out, do I truly believe? Yeah, you're not ever going to change totally because we've got lots of things to work out. I've been following him for 46 years, and there's places where he's changed my life greatly, and there's places where, he, where I haven't been changed. And the more he's worked out of my life, I look in my life and see so much more garbage still sticking in there that I had never even thought of before, and there's more garbage to be dealt with and, and taken out. We will always be being perfected. The point that we have is if we ever stop being perfected, then we have to again start looking at our life and say, do I know God? Am I following him? Am I in a relationship with him? Because it's kind of strange that everything he's taken out of my life, I look in my life and I'm going, God, there's so much more there. How are we going to get rid of all of this? And he's just, he very patiently keeps taking things out. And I've also used this as the idea of a light that's being shined. If you look in a room with a 15 watt bulb, it may look pretty clean. Then you put a 40-watt bulb in there, and all of a sudden the place looks pretty bad. You get a 200-watt bulb in there, and all of a sudden you see all the little smudges and dust. You know, and if you were to put a 500-watt light in there, which I don't think exists, but you, know, you understand what I'm saying. That the brighter the light, the dirtier the place looks. And this is something that we have to be, be aware of. The more light God shines in our life, the more we're going to see the corners of our life that, is, that are dirty. And he's going to give us more jobs to, to work out of our life. Now, having said that, most people will look at you and say, well, gee, you got your whole thing put together. You know, you look really good because after a while, you don't have so many outward sins that you're dealing with. It's a lot of it is mental sins. You know, the, the idea of, of uh, your thought processes and, your, and your, the way you think. And God will start working those out of your life over time as well. But it takes time. And we're never going to be all perfect. The goal is not necessarily, our desire is to be perfect, but we're never really going to get there in this lifetime. Because God will show us how sinful we are. Because he says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who shall know it in Jeremiah? You know, well, the tongue, yeah, most of us can't control our tongues. But, but even at that, the heart that we have, God changes it into a heart that just seeks after him, but there's still problems in our life, always. Because if we could, if we could totally control our tongues, we can totally control every thought that we have, we'd be perfect, and God would take us home. Okay, but we're not. And all of us, you know, how many times, maybe you've even done good, you haven't said what you thought, but you thought it. Okay, which is good that you didn't say it, but you still thought it. And if you go far enough down the road, maybe you won't, won't even think that thought. And so this is what it comes down to. God is going to continue to work in our life. And he says our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They had outward perfection, but not inward. Okay. What did John the Baptist say? I mean, you know, who have warned you, vipers, to come to come for repentance? Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers. 
Okay, you're you're a you're a grave that looks good on the outside, but you know you're still stinking in the in in the inside of it. Okay, and he says your your righteousness has to exceed that righteousness. In other words, it has to be perfect, and nobody is perfect, which is why we need Jesus Christ, and He comes into our life. He closes with His righteousness. God looks at us and says, "You're perfect." This is something I keep hammering on. God sees us as perfect because he knows who we will be. And he sees us as who we will be at the end when he glorifies us. Not as we see ourselves. Because we see all of our sin and our problems and our issues. And God says, I see the end. I see the end. Have you ever had something where you're doing a project and you see the end but nobody else does? Maybe restoring a car or something. You know where you're headed with that car and all the other people see is this hunk of junk. And, uh, or you're, if you're a painter or an artist, you're drawing a picture that looks terrible at the beginning because it's just sketched in, there's nothing there. But you know what you see as the, end, as the end product. And people look at it and say, wow, that doesn't look good at all. And you just, just wait. <laughs> just wait till we get to the end. This is God in our, in our lives saying, I know where I'm taking you. Just be patient. We're going to get there. Be patient, and I'm going to get you to the end, end result, which is your glorified body, which is perfect. But we need to be patient sometimes with God. And sometimes we get very impatient. God, I just can't get this right. I keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. And God says, we'll get it taken care of. We'll get it taken care of. Now, do I make, having said that, do I go out and I make room for sin? No, I should not make room for sin. And we talked about this at times. Somebody gives up drinking or, or, or using uh, alcohol or drugs. They, they're giving it up. But in the back of their drawer, or the back, you know, they, have the, they have a stash of drugs just in, case they, just in case they need it. Or they got the bottle in the back corner of the closet just in case they need that drink. And they will need it. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, if you've made that provision, you will eventually fall and take it. It just, it happens. If you are a thief and you make provision for whatever you need, you know, need to be a thief, you will eventually do it. This is, you're giving up pornography, but you keep all your passwords for all of your sites that you're going to, and you keep your subscriptions to your magazines. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to stack them up in the corner in case I, in case I need them. And you're going to. You're going to fall. When I talked about them, the Pharisees would declare their stuff Corbin. This is during Jesus' day. That's what the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees would do. You know, rather than having to help their parents or help their brothers and sisters or anything, they would declare everything. It wasn't a law. It wasn't a law anywhere. In it. it was just something they decided that they would declare their stuff dedicated Corbin, dedicated to God. And it, 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 when they died, it would all technically supposed to go to God. We have that we have that process right now where it's in your estate planning that you could you can say that everything in your or, or pieces of your estate go to lots of nonprofits now are really encouraging you to leave leave stuff to them if not everything to them at, on your death. It was the same mentality. The idea of Corbin has been going on forever with religions. You know, it's leave it to God or the church. The Catholic Church did it a lot. Buy your way into heaven by giving us your estate. You know, it's have your name put on everything. And a lot of the, in New England, it's a really big thing that this pew dedicated, you know, in the name of so-and-so or, 
or this window, this, this entryway, this door, and it has their little name plaque on it. But yeah, that idea of Corbin, I don't, you know, it wasn't the main part of this, but it was one of the ways they just got around obeying God's laws is the whole point of it. And yes, it still kind of goes on today through different kinds of estate planning. And it's being raised up. It's really being raised up again in recent years to be in a way to fundraise for nonprofits. You know, hey, you, when you die, you don't need your stuff. Send it to send us part, you know, part or all. It, you know, they don't really care, but they'll talk about giving your giving your estate you know, or, or part of it to away it on your death. And that's what that that's what that Corbin idea was. It's dedicated to God. I can use it during my lifetime, and then it goes to goes to the temple. But Jesus was telling them it was really bad because you're saying because he's saying you're supposed to honor your parents and yet you've declared that you know your parents are in need, you know. And basically he was saying your parents are broke, they need you to come into your home or need you to give them money and you're and you're saying no, I can't help you. But we all know people who have had bad relationships with their parents and it's again, there's nothing new under the sun. There's always people there's always been people who have had such a bad time with their parents that they pretty much don't have anything to do with their parents after they get out of home. And in the Hebrew practice, the eldest son got a double portion of the inheritance. And that double portion wasn't because he was special. He was to, he was to take the second portion of that inheritance and put it aside to help pay for any problems with his brothers and sisters and, and all of that because the eldest was the patriarch of the family and if they got in trouble you know they got into debt trouble or something he was to pay off their debts he was to be their kinsman redeemer and that's what that second portion was designed for now was it always used that way no a few of them would get stingy and angry and not help their brothers and sisters but but that purpose of the double portion was that they would support and help the family in times of need again they didn't always do that but that was what they were supposed to do Okay, verse 21. Ye have heard it said by them of old time, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has ought against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and you be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, you shall by no means come out thence till you have paid the utmost farthing. So let's look at this. He says, you have heard it said by them of old time. So he's saying this is, this is what you're hearing from as far back. Okay. This is nothing new. You shall not kill. And literally that is murder. You shall not murder and whosoever shall murder shall be in danger of judgment or guilty or worthy of the penalty of judgment okay and so jesus is saying you have heard it said that if you if you kill you will be or murder you will be judged all right and this is what he's saying it is very true you do something and judgment follows plain and simple and this is where the scribes and pharisees were at they were all about 
what you did, not about what you thought or what you, what you felt, but what you did. You could be the most angry, bitter person in your mind as long as you didn't act on it. You were okay, and that's how they, that's how this is, how they thought. And this is why he said that the previous verse, your, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Because God cares about our heart attitude and our, not just what we do. And that's when he says in verse 22, but. And I always, and I've made a big deal of, when you see the word but or therefore, you need to find out what is changing or what is, what is the next statement. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother, and this angry is to provoke, arouse to anger, to be angry or be provoked. Now, all of us have been angry or provoked at some point in our lifetime. Many of us can get provoked pretty easy. All right? And God says, if you are even provoked without a cause, and this means a just cause, not just because you, they, they got under your skin, but do you have a real reason to be angry with somebody? All right? Is there a real righteous anger involved, or is it just they've bugged you so much? And so this is something that's very important for us. He goes, without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Again, guilty of judgment. All right. So he is saying now, you think that murder is bad, and you're right. <laughs> you're going to be judged. But he goes, I'm going to tell you that even if you're angry with your brother, you're, you're guilty without a cause. Now, I have said oftentimes, if I'm angry because somebody has done something wrong to me, it's very rarely, if ever, righteous anger. All right? Because why are we usually angry when somebody has offended us? That was the right word right there. I have been offended. And as soon as you put the I in there, it is hard to have righteous anger. Now, if I'm angry because somebody is mistreating a widow or an orphan or a young child, I can still cross the line in my anger, but it's easier to stay righteously angry. I'm, I am very upset that you are abusing who God cares about. And there you can be angry and stay in righteousness. Just as when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple with the whip, I am guaranteeing you he didn't go in there and saying, I want you all out of my father's house. <laughs> and it even tells us he turned the tables over. He went in there and he said, he, you can picture him yelling, get out of my father's house, you're making it a den of thieves. He was angry, not at something that has offended him, but was offending the father. So it was a righteous anger. And you don't go in with a whip and, and, and look, you know, being tame. He was driving them out. And people would have looked at him and said, you can't do that. You're, you're being angry. He was being angry for, with a righteous cause. But again, how often do we ever have, when we get angry, it is usually that somebody has offended us. You know, I am offended. You have bothered me. You have, you have pushed all my buttons and now I am angry. <laughs> whether they meant to or not, or whether they even knew they were pushing buttons. <laughs> but... Here he's saying, when you're angry without a just cause, basically you're in danger of the same punishment as murder. And this is something that is very 
hard for us to get hold of to be able to understand because we think, oh, it's just human nature to be angry. Well, it is human nature, but that's not the nature we're supposed to be walking in because it's easy for us to get angry. And we need to practice letting God be our defense. And we've talked a lot about that in in the book of Psalms. If we allow God to be our defense when we are being abused, we will keep from being angry because we're laying it all on God's side. God, you're my defender. You're my protector. And over the years, and I've said this many times, over the years I have watched God defend his children, including myself, when we will just back off. As long as we don't try to get in the middle of it, God will defend. Now, if we want to defend ourselves, God will just step back and say, okay, you defend yourself and we'll make a mess of it every single time. At least I have. And most of the people I've watched have. When they try to defend themselves, things get worse. If they just back off and let God be their defense, God does a wonderful job defending us. The righteousness will shine forth. Honesty will shine forth. It may take a little while sometimes, but it does come forth, and God makes a wonderful defender. And so when we're being attacked by people, oftentimes, and we all know what it's like, if you're being attacked and your reputation is being smeared, usually if you try to defend your own, your own honor, your own your, yourself, it just makes matters worse. Because then people start with the, well, whether there's smoke, there's fire stuff, because you're being so defensive of yourself, they're going, why are they defending themselves so hard? Somebody's just smearing your reputation. If you just step back, God will defend. It always happens. And it's very important for us just to be able to step back. Is it, again, is it easy to do? No, it takes a lot of practice to be able to get to that place. But the more you do it and the more you see God defend you, the easier it gets. Because you just step back and say, okay, God, God, I'm going to let you do this. Jesus did not spend all of his time trying to defend the, the attacks upon him. He just allowed the Father to deal with him and let the truth come out. Paul did not sit down and try to defend all the attacks upon himself. He just lived God's righteous life and let, let God defend him. So important for us to just step back. God is a defender of the weak. God is the defender of the widows. He is the defender of the orphans. He is the defender of the father, the, 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 the ones who are weak. He says that when we are weak, we are strong because it is hard. It is great strength, actually, to just let God be your defense. Even though people look at you and say, well, this person is so weak, they're not, even, they're not even defending themselves. I can guarantee somebody or something will come up to defend you. Always. It will always happen that God will defend your integrity as long as you don't deserve what's coming what they're saying about you now if you deserve what they're saying about you it's not an attack anyway it's just them saying the truth experience has been though if you are basically just not trying to defend yourself a lot of people will defend you anyway Uh, when i was a restaurant manager and there were people just abusing me terribly and you were being professional and nice to them and not attacking them Usually the next four or five people go, how'd you do that? I would have, I would have smacked them. I would have, I would have cursed them and going, well, because my job is to be nice to them. 
but it was more than just my job. I mean, that's who I am in Christ, but my job also was to be nice to them. But the people would sometimes, you know, occasionally even people would go, would you just shut up? You know, you're making a big deal out of nothing, you know, because you're trying to be nice to them. You're trying to help them out, and they're just being... And that's where the righteous anger can come into. When I'm, if you're defending somebody who is being weak, that's where you want to go. Uh, but again, if you're trying to defend yourself, it very rarely works. Very rarely. I'm real slow when it comes to, to saying the right thing. I usually think of the right thing to say about three hours after the fact. So I'm better off not getting involved with the, trying to defend myself because I know I'm going to mess it up. Even with witnessing sometimes, I'll, I'll, I'll be talking to somebody and I'll think of the right answer three hours after I'm done witnessing to them. So, and I'm going, oh, I should have said this. This would have been the right thing to say. Even having said that, we just want to be careful because he goes on and says, who shall say to his brother, Racha, which is empty-headed person, it's a term of reproach, you are totally empty-headed, shall be in danger of the counsel or judgment. But whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of judgment. And foolishness or impious, godless is what that really means. Uh, Proverbs tells us, the fool have said in his heart, there is no God, and also in, in Psalms. So he says, if you're calling somebody a fool, you're basically telling them that they are, un, that they are godless. And this is strong. We don't, we don't have that same mentality in our language. But in Hebrew, it is a very, very hard, harsh thing to say because basically you're telling them, you, you don't even believe in God. And he says, that person is going to be in danger of hellfire. Again, it is that attack on people that's saying, no, you're just empty-headed. You don't even think or you don't, you're not a godly person. And he says, you, you use those kind of language and that kind of language, you're... You're in judgment because you're standing in judgment of those people. And we want to be very careful because God is very careful when he says we're not to judge others because they stand or fall before God. Now, if I have a really good friend who has invited me to help them see when they're doing wrong, then that's a different story. I've got a couple of friends that if we see each other, you know, go in the wrong direction, we'll tell each other hey, you're going in the wrong direction. I've been praying for you. I want you to know I'm really concerned about the direction you're going. As a pastor, I get close enough to some people that I'm willing to be able to say, hey, you know, I'm concerned about this or that in your life. But I'm even, even as a pastor, I'm careful about that part. But going back to what you said, I would seek out somebody that you could meet with and get to know that well. It wasn't natural for me to do it, but I've done it in two different places where I've gotten to know people and basically, I just met with these men, you know, once a week and just we, you know, we start opening up and sharing our lives with one another. And we pray for one another and give them that permission to actually help us as they see us going into the wrong, you know, if we're going in the wrong direction. But it's a way to, for men to grow together. It was the basis of Promise Keepers were for men to get together in, two, in, in groups of two or three and get to know each other and pray for each other and and help be accountable for one another and, and, and help each other in growth. So it's important that, and I really do think this is important, and I am in the process of trying to find some more men to be able to meet with because the two that I used to meet have kind of gone on to do other things. But it's a way you get to meet with these guys, and it takes a while sometimes for people to open up because men don't like to open up a lot of times. And so usually it would take six months to a year before you would really start talking about anything of any real depth. But when, that, when you hit that point, it was really good. 
But I would encourage anybody, look around, find somebody, and just, you know, you plan to meet once, you know, once a week or once every other week or at least once a month. I, I figure no more than every two weeks is the way to do it. And you just get together, you pray, you talk, and, and share, share things in your life and, and be able to open up to people. And it's very important. It's a very important aspect because these men know me in ways that nobody else really does. They know my weaknesses. They know my strengths. They know, you know, they know where, where I have problems. And so they will sit down and some, oftentimes it'll go, well, how are you doing in this area? And we'll do it with each other. You know, how are you doing in this weak area? Have you been, you know, have you been okay this week with it? And it also gives you somebody to talk to when you're really having a hard time because you're going, hey, I, I just need, I need somebody to pray for me now. And uh, so I encourage people to do that. You know, look around, find somebody in the church that fits that, that need and just meet with them, you know, once for an hour or two every t week or two and, and just get to know each other and, and develop that life, you know, that, that accountability partner. And it's very important because they can help you. They go, well, you know, I've noticed you've been slipping back into this area that you, that you were trying to get out of. Let me pray with you or... Uh, let me, you know, I'm praying for you. And that may be all you need to do. I've noticed you've been, this has been happening in your life. I've been praying for you. And that may be all somebody needs. Sometimes it might be a straightforward challenge. Hey, I, I've seen that you've been acting on this activity that I know you're weak in. I'm just going to get in your face at this point and say, you know, you're going down the wrong way. But, but that relationship brings in that permission to say these things for two people. Verse 23, therefore... If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has ought against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is kind of an interesting statement that we want to bring out. If when you bring your gift to God, you remember that somebody has ought against you, not that you have ought against them, but you know that somebody is angry with you. Jesus says, go and be reconciled with them. Okay, this is not saying I have a problem with them. It says the brother has a problem with me and I know about it. This really goes into our walk that we make before people. And God is saying, I want you to be proactive in your seeking of fellowship. How many times have I heard somebody say, well, they haven't asked for forgiveness or they haven't, they don't deserve the forgiveness. God isn't, Jesus is saying, doesn't say anything about them deserving it, asking for it. He goes, you know that they have a problem. You go to them. Very important for us. As Christians, we are to develop relationships with people and try to be proactive on them. This is one thing about forgiveness that I keep telling people. You know, well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. Well, God doesn't say that they have to ask for forgiveness. We are to forgive them before they ask even. This is what God did to us. He did not wait for us to ask for forgiveness before he provided the forgiveness for us. Now to actually receive it, we have to go and, go and, and accept that gift. But he had the gift. He's got the payment. He's forgiven us from his side. He's waiting for us to accept that forgiveness. Now will everybody reconcile? Will everybody be, allow you to forgive them? No. But our job is to offer, to make it pure, at least from our side. You know, what can I do 
to make things right. You're angry with me. What can I do to make it right? If we had that happening in all the different churches that we have around this country and people sat down and tried to make things right between them, what a difference the church would be. A different place. Now, you're not going to know every time somebody's angry at you. But how many times have you in your lifetime have you know that somebody's angry at you and you just kind of go, well, no big deal. I don't want to have anything to do with them anyway. And they, st- and they stay angry at you because you've not made the offer. It's kind of, it's a humbling place. It's an interesting place. And you know what? They may or may not even be angry at, for you for a reason that you've done. There have been people that get angry at me because I, just because. <laughs> and whether it's right or wrong doesn't really matter because God says, if you know that they have something against you, go and make it right. And it's not easy. It's not, again, it's one of those things that's not easy to do. And he says, God doesn't want our gifts if we're not right with others, is what he's saying. Another place in, in, we're told that if you are not in right relationship with your wife, God doesn't hear the men's prayers. Why? Because God is very serious about our relationships. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. Christians should stand out as a special group of people, not because we're special, but because God loves through us. And his love will shine forth and help people. And, but because love is different. People do not really understand love. Many movies on the Christian side of things are based upon until you learn to love other people, things will not be right in your life. You cannot have a good marriage until you learn to love that individual with God's love. All right? And what is God's love? We've talked about this before. It's agape love or unconditional love or the definition I like better, objective love. I choose to love, which means I am going to love because I have chosen to love. Doesn't matter what you do or don't do. Doesn't matter what happens or doesn't happen. I have chosen to love because that is the way God loves. His love is by choice. He chooses to love us. And the good news for God is because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he doesn't change, he will not unchoose to love us because he has chosen to love the world. How much does he love the world? He sent his son to die for the world. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he loves us that much. He will love the individuals at the white throne judgment that have chosen to go to hell by by the rejection of Jesus Christ. He is still going to love those individuals that he's forced to give them what they wanted, which is hell. He's still going to love them. And I, can, I will tell you, I really truly believe that at the white throne judgment, it is going to be a heartbreaking time for God. Because he's going to look at them and say, I gave you every opportunity to choose me and you rejected me, and he sends them to hell. Knowing that that's what they deserve, because that's what they've asked for in their lifetime, but it's still one of those things that's going to break his heart. Just as many of us have children that are making bad decisions in our, and, and doing the wrong thing, and it breaks our heart, knowing that they're getting what they deserve and, and doing, what, you know, doing what they want, but it still breaks our heart as a parent that our kids are going down the wrong path away from God. 
God will have that same heartbreak when he sends people to hell. Or not even sends, but gives them what they've chosen. That's a pretty better way to say that. Because when people, how can God send people to hell? Well, he doesn't. He's given them what they have chosen. They reject Jesus Christ and choose hell. He's going to give them what they've chosen. Um, so, But here he says, go to them. Seek forgiveness. Seek reconciliation. He says, verse 25, Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer to be cast into prison. And this is pretty much a very much truism. You work out the details at the lowest possible level and don't let it go to court. That's really how we would look at this. And that's what he's saying. Now, when somebody's mad at you, take care of it there. You know, don't, don't procrastinate it and then have them go to court and have you arrested and sent to prison. And this was something that was done frequently. If you violated something, you ended up in prison until you could pay off the debt. And you worked off the debt in prison, which meant that you didn't work, you know, you never, you never got the debt paid off. Our debtor's prisons were based on the same place. You never, you never earned enough to pay off a debt when you went to debtor's prison. It's, it just didn't happen. Because the little, little bit you made didn't pay it off. And this is what he's saying. Take, he's saying basically be proactive. Fix things before they explode into a major problem. And very important because he says this person might just take you to court and you'll be arrested and sent to, sent to prison because you owe this person something. He says fix it. Be, agree with them. Fix the problem quickly. And because uh, he says verily I say unto you you shall know, by no means come out of thence till you have paid the utmost finally, and basically saying, once you get sent to that debtor's prison, you will be there till you pay everything. No grace, no no mercy. You are there for the for the duration of that debt. And this is true even in our courts, pretty much. Once you go to court and you're found guilty, there's very rarely mercy. Now, every once in a while, there'll be mercy. Well, they'll say, you know. I throw myself on the mercy of the court. You know, please don't give me what I deserve. And you might get it, but that, there's no way you're guaranteed to get mercy when you're, when, you're, when you're shown up. And Jesus is saying this is that case. If you deserve it, you're going to be sent into prison and you'll be there until you pay the, the whole penalty. Which is what God does to those who, dis, who choose not to follow Christ, who choose not to obey Christ. He will send them to hell where they will be punished for the rest of their eternity because they have rejected him and they cannot pay the price that they're going to pay and they will spend eternity in hell. And we need to really be, get a picture of this. Hell is forever. When they go to hell, they're there for the rest of eternity being punished in punishment that we can't even begin to imagine. The lake of fire where there's no light but burning and burning is horrible enough then we're told that the, the worm is in there, and it really is referring to the conscience. The people in hell will know that they're there because they chose it, which will be even worse. They know that they could have had something else and that they chose by their rejection of Christ, and they will be reminded of everything that they had done to deserve it for eternity. That's a terrible punishment just in that. And then all of the pain of the lake of fire. It is not going to be a, a pleasant place, and we need to really get a picture of the awfulness of hell 
to motivate us to share the gospel with others. Because I've heard a lot of people say, well, I don't want to share it. I don't want people to get mad at you. Well, you want them to be mad at you for eternity because you didn't tell them? Because you were afraid they were going to be mad at you for this lifetime? No, I, I don't want that to be the case. I want to share the gospel with people, so especially my loved ones. And I've shared the gospel with almost everybody in my family that I can think of. I can't think of anybody in my family that I have not shared the gospel with. But they've been shared. And I still share every once in a while with them to, because I don't want them to go to hell. Do I share with them every single time I see them? Not necessarily. But I share the gospel because I don't want to see them go to hell. And I don't want them to be able to point to me, it's all your fault that I'm here. Well, it would be their fault. They, they may try to blame us, but it's their fault. But, but if we've shared the gospel, we're not at fault. If we haven't shared the gospel... Paul said, I thank God that I am not guilty of any man's blood. Basically, he was saying, I've shared the gospel with everybody that I'm supposed to share it with. I wish I could say that. I know that there are people I should have shared the gospel with, and I didn't. I cannot, I'm not, do not have the boldness of Paul to say, I'm not guilty of any man's blood. Now, I'm hoping and knowing that God will send somebody else. If I don't speak, God will send somebody else. There, there will be nobody that hits the white throne judgment who has not heard the gospel or been convicted of their sin and know that they need that they need God they will stand before God guilty and he will show them that they are guilty they will hear maybe they didn't hear from the best person the people that I should have spoken to I was the best person that God prepared but he put somebody else in their path and they will hear but we don't want to look at that and say well you know God you'll, you'll take care of it I'm just not going to speak because you'll take care of it that's called a sin of omission. We do not do what we're supposed to do. And that's the, there's sins of commission and sins of omission. When I don't do what I'm supposed to do, that's still a sin. And this goes down to, do I, show, do I come to church like I'm supposed to? We're told in the scriptures, forsake not the assembling of yourself together and so much more as you see the day approaching. If I do not come to church, then I am doing a sin of omission. I am not doing what I am supposed to do. And that's just as much a sin as doing something that I know that I'm not supposed to do. And this is really the one that lots of people, when they stand before God, end up facing, especially Christians when we stand at the Bema seat and our, and our works are, are burnt up and he shows us all the things that we should have had. There will be an aspect where he'll show us, I had so much more for you. I'm glad that here's your rewards. And some, we'll all come out with something. But he'll also be, probably show us those things that, you could have had a whole lot. You had, could have had a whole lot more. This pile of stuff over here is what I had in store for you if you had just done these things. And we will realize what we have lost, but we will rejoice at what we get. Because his whole purpose is to show us, here's what you, here's what you get. Here's what I get to, you get to keep for all of eternity. And hopefully it's more than we realize because of our walk with God. But even, the, even at that, there will be a pile of stuff where he says, this, I had so much more for you. I really wanted to give you more if you had just walked in the right way. But here, here is your gift. Here, here is your, not gift, but your rewards for, for what you allowed me to do through you. And this is what's important. It's what we allow him to do through us. Not what I've strove to do, not my works. Because my works are filthy rags. And this is what it says in Isaiah, our all our righteousness, every, the best things we can do in our flesh 
is filthy rags. And this is why when I meet people, goes, I'm, I'm striving, I'm trying. I'll tell them to quit striving and quit trying. Let God. Let God change who you are and, and see the changes. And we're going to stop here. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to follow you and to seek you. We ask that you guide and lead us in all that we do and, and help us to share you with others. Help us to lift you up in all that we do. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.